What's up, y'all? It's your girl, Nurse Ree, and you're tuning in to Forensic Nurse Files. This is an informative but fun true crime podcast that follows the careers of three forensic nurse examiners. We just want to note that this podcast uses foul language, some sarcasm, and contains descriptions of adult themes and violence that some people may find disturbing. So if you need support, please check the show notes or visit our website. So let's talk about some warning signs that you may see in children that could be indicative that a CSA may have occurred. So um, physical signs could be sexually transmitted infections. Um, a lot of my child sexual assaults, um, and it's not an STI, but I think just an example, a lot of them had UTIs. A lot yeah. of them had UTIs. Yeah. Um, so transmitted infections, so signs of trauma also to the genital area. So unexplained bleeding, which I've seen, uh, bruising, which I've seen, blood on the sheets, underwear, clothing, which we've seen, uh, behavioral signs, so excessive talk about or knowledge of sexual topics, which I haven't seen. Have you seen that? So I feel like I've seen this go a couple of different ways in the cases that I've seen it. I've definitely seen the ones that don't disclose, don't want to talk about it, act like nothing happened. Then there's the ones like you're saying that um, suddenly are very comfortable talking about sexual things or talking about certain body parts and the parents or caregivers or whoever it may be that's noticing this is like, where did this come from all of a sudden? Where are they learning these words? And then there's also the ones that I've seen that are super uncomfortable being exposed. Like they'll hide when it's bath time. They don't want to take their clothes off. Um, Very apprehensive to show any of their body parts. So I I feel like I've kind of got a broad range, unfortunately, of CSA victims. Oh, okay. Keeping secrets, not talking as much as usual. That's something that we really see a lot. That is a huge one. That's a big one. Um, Not wanting to be left alone with a certain person or being afraid to be away from primary caregivers, especially if this is a new behavior. That's a big red flag. That is a huge red flag. If your child ever verbalizes that they do not want to be left alone with this person do not leave them alone with that person for the love of god i mean for real that could definitely be a cry out for help um and then at the very end especially if this is new behavior yeah no we're not doing that um regressive behaviors or resuming behaviors they had grown out of such as thumb sucking or bedwetting i've had a lot of bedwetters um that were formerly potters Yeah, me too. And this is real indicative that something's off with your child. It may not necessarily mean that a CSA has occurred, but if your child goes from being completely potty trained, no issues there, to all of a sudden they're consistently wetting the bed, that's a red flag. Something's going on there. Check it out. And bedwetting is something that can continue on into adulthood, even if this is something that occurred as a child. Yeah. Um... Overly compliant behavior, sexual behavior that is inappropriate for the child's age. So like going back to the one you just said where they talk about it too much. Um, spending an unusual time, amount of time alone. So like isolating themselves. Yep, I've seen that too. And then this last one, which is kind of what I was touching on earlier, um, trying to avoid removing clothing to change or bathe. So that's something that I've experienced a lot. Like they don't want any clothing removed. They don't want bath time. They don't want their diaper change. These are just 
signs that something may have occurred. It doesn't necessarily mean that definitely something occurred. But if these are new behaviors in the child, you might need to or want to investigate a little deeper. Yes. Yes. And like nursery said earlier, your gut feeling, right? So if these things happen and you feel like it's fine, okay. But if you, I mean, typically parents know when something is wrong. So just watch out for those signs. Um, Also emotional signs, change in eating habits. So not really, I mean, not just not eating, but overeating too. Um, Change in mood or personality, such as increased aggression. Decrease in confidence or self-image. That kind of ties back to what I was saying before with not wanting to be exposed, not wanting to change their clothes. Um, If they're a teenager and they're super vibrant, like to wear bright things, and then they're suddenly depressed and wearing dark clothing, um, just not comfortable in their skin, those are signs. Um, Excessive worry or fearfulness, that's a big one too. A lot of these kids will have Um, anxiety as a direct relation to the situation they've just been through or have been through over a period of time. An increase in unexplained health problems such as stomach aches and headaches. I really haven't seen that one that much, have you? I haven't either, but I feel like it could be like referred symptoms from anxiety. Yeah, I agree with that. And now that you say that, I also think that It could be, um, and not to say that it's all kids, but it could be kids making excuses. You know, a lot of times when kids are bullied or there's something going on at school, they'll fake a stomach ache or a headache so that they can stay home. And so I wonder if it could be a little bit of that too. Loss or decrease in interest in school activities and friends. Um, Nightmares or fear of being alone at night. Yep, that's a big one. A huge one. And I feel like that ties back into bedwetting. Um, Self-harming behaviors. That's a big... I've seen that one a lot in the older kids. Like 14, thir- uh, actually like 13 and on, 13 to 17. Yeah, definitely amongst the teenage group. I had a girl the other day and she had self-harm scars, I mean, everywhere. All down her, both legs, cut, 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 both arms, her abdomen, her shoulders. I mean, it was everywhere. Jeez. Fuck, that must have been crazy to see And then it's like, you know, we have to take pictures of everything. So, I mean, she had to show it all to me. And so it was just, it was a lot. And y'all, this can get pretty overwhelming, but we just want to keep reiterating to trust your gut. If you feel like something's off, something's probably off. And like Nurse Joy was just saying a little bit ago, parents, y'all know your kids, so... You have that intuition. If you feel like something's wrong, it doesn't hurt to just try to get down on your child's level, whatever developmental age or age they are. Just try to talk to them in age-appropriate ways, like we were saying before. Yeah, exactly. So the most important thing to keep in mind when looking for signs of child sexual abuse is to keep an eye on sudden changes in behavior. Trust your gut and don't ignore your feelings if something seems off. If a child tells you that someone makes them uncomfortable, even if they can't tell you anything specific, listen. That's a big one. So some warning signs that an adult may be abusing a child. So 
The warning signs that we just went over are more of what you want to look for in the child themselves, but now we're going to talk about what you can look for in the perpetrator. So keeping children safe can be challenging because many perps who sexually abuse children are in positions of trust. So 93% of child sexual assault victims know their perpetrator, and we cannot stress that enough. This includes family members, members of faith communities, coaches, teachers, and other helping professionals. So pretty much anybody that's in a position of authority over a child is in a position to be an abuser of that child. Yes, absolutely. Yep, including hugging and all that stuff. Like if your child does not want to touch anybody, you should not require them to doesn't matter if they're family it doesn't matter if it's you know if they don't want to hug you like that's them saying no the whole thing consent is cool and mandatory consent is cool and mandatory <laughs> nurse joy has officially entered the chat here she is consent in all aspects including like touching being around people like and that's one of the things i think our generation is um becoming more aware of is that the whole like where's my hug thing is not fucking cool like it's not no i will not require my children like if they want to that's fine but only if they want to and you can ask them and they can say no and that's not disrespectful you can wave if my child doesn't want to touch you you can wave that's fine Just respect people's boundaries. Whether it's a child or adult, they still have boundaries and they're entitled to have those. Tries to be a child's friend rather than filling an adult role in the child's life. That's a big one, yep. Yeah. Um, Does not seem to have age-appropriate relationships. Um, So typically hanging around people who are younger. Talks with children about their personal problems or relationships. Now that I'm reading that, that's kind of weird to talk to um children about if you're not their parent like I feel like you're you know um you know like their personal problems or relationships could or could not be shared with your direct parent but like a family friend who's older of an opposite gender is kind of strange spends time alone with children outside of their role in the child's life or makes up excuses to be alone with the child so this is an adult that's constantly isolating a child taking them away from their comforting trusted people in order to groom or commit whatever act their nasty mind may be wanting to commit. That's, yes, that is the time spent in grooming. Um, Expresses unusual interest in child's sexual development, such as commenting on sexual characteristics or sexualizing normal behaviors. That's fucking weird. Now, that is something that I hear happens a lot, unfortunately. It may be somebody's weird uncle or somebody in a church or somebody in a school setting saying, oh, you're built just like your mama or like making little one-off, like inappropriate comments towards a child. And that is going to snowball and that's going to become something bigger. So if you hear an adult making those types of comments towards a child, Alarm bells, red flags, like all the fucking things. That's fucking weird. Real fucking weird because why the hell are you commenting on a child's body like that in a sexual manner? Like, ew. Commenting on sexual characteristics? That's fucking weird. Yeah. Why would you do that as an adult? Yeah. That's fucking weird. Yeah. Gives a child gifts without occasion or reason. 
spends a lot of time with your child or another child you know, and restricts a child's access to other adults. And so the risk factors, girl, I feel like there's always a million of these. Like a thousand million. So family structure is the most important risk factor in CSA. Children who live with two married biological parents are at low risk for abuse. The risk increases when children live with step-parents or a single parent, which is why we always default to a parent's significant other or whoever they're seeing at the moment. Um, Children living without either parent, so foster children, are 10 times more likely to be sexually abused than children that live with both biological parents. So there's kind of a lot to unpack there. I have a question. So it says children who live with two married biological parents. So... And this may be, like, a controversial question, but, like, what if they're married and they're the bio parents, but they hate each other? I think that the reason the research shows that is that it boils down to it not being one of the parents' biological children. And it's saying that a happily married couple is less likely to abuse their own children, which is not necessarily true. I think maybe... I don't know. I feel like... Not thinking about my child sexual assault, I don't think any of mine were from the biological parent. I know a lot of my child physical abuse, a lot of my child physical abuse was from the bio parent, but not the child sexual abuse. What about you? You know, I've had a couple and the one that always comes to mind is that family I had where it started with dad and then it was the three sons that like trickled down. But also, research does show that when abuse happens in a family setting, it's way less likely to be reported. They'll keep it under wraps. Or it'll be reported when the child is older. So, man. Oh, this next bullet point. Children who live with a single parent that has a live-in partner are at the highest risk. They are 20 times more likely to be victims of child sexual abuse than children living with both bio parents. 20 times. 20 times girlfriend i want to say other than like a couple most of mine were this situation yeah me too i can think of maybe a couple that was maybe a friend that was babysitting but majority of them were this situation where it was a live-in partner that's and so that that statistic is definitely like we can we can back because personal experience and your personal experience also um yeah the majority of our cases or was the situation gender is also a major factor in sexual abuse so females are five times more likely to be abused than males the age of the male being abused also plays a part eight percent of victims age 12 to 17 are male 26 percent of victims under the age of 12 are male african-american children have almost twice the risk of sexual abuse than white children Uh, Children of Hispanic ethnicity have a slightly greater risk than non-Hispanic white children. Um, The risk for sexual abuse is tripled for children whose parents are not in the labor force. Which ties into the next bullet point. Children in low socioeconomic status households are three times as likely to be identified as victims of child abuse. Most studies have reported that children with disabilities are at a greater risk for sexual abuse. The latest research identified instances of child sexual abuse involving children with disabilities at only half the rate of their non-disabled peers. They're probably targeted. Exactly. And I have a story about that, too. One of the hospitals that I worked at, y'all know I'm a travel nurse. 
Um, a respiratory therapist and a nurse were convicted of molesting brain damaged, unresponsive, nonverbal children. Hey, someone just caught him one day. So it's actually kind of crazy how they got caught. So ICE, which is Immigration and Customs Enforcement, actually traced child porn internet traffic to their home computers, found the photos, and that's how they end up getting caught and then ended up admitting, well, the respiratory therapist ended up admitting that he had molested countless number of children. And I actually looked up the article and it says that when they asked him how many kids they were talking about, he looked out the window and said, how many snowflakes are out there? Like, how fucking creepy? What a fucking creep, girl. Oh, my God. It's just so sad, but they are targeted because if you think about it, first off, they're already children, right? So that makes them an easy target. And then they have a disability on top of that. And so they can't, like, verbalize what's happening or maybe even know that it's wrong. So sick. No, 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 girl. Um, children who live in rural areas are almost two times more likely to be identified as victims of child sexual abuse. Um, children who witness or are the victim of other crimes are significantly more likely to be sexually abused, just like the case that you had. So let's talk about some consequences and after effects of CSA. Experiencing CSA can affect how a person thinks, acts, and feels over a lifetime. This can result in short and long-term physical, mental, and behavioral health consequences. Well, because your mind is developing, right, still, when you're a child, you know, age before 17, that it's probably the interruption in the normal things happening to you probably puts a whole, um, like, it disturbs the whole um, wavelength of you developing correctly, you know, or appropriately. So, and it's like when you get, when you get emotionally injured at a time where you're still developing and learning, that sticks with you, right? So long-term effects, long, long long-term effects. Um, Examples of physical health consequences include uh, sexually transmitted infections, physical injuries, and chronic conditions later in life, such as heart disease, obesity, and cancer, which I didn't know. I didn't know that either, but I feel like it goes back to when we talked about emotional signs that you'll see in children, changes in eating habits, like overeating or undereating, you know, substance abuse, those things catch up with you later in life. Substance abuse is a big one. Yeah. Yeah. So there's also obviously mental health consequences, which can include depression, PTSD, anxiety. Codependency are the opposite, isolation. Examples of behavioral consequences include substance abuse, um, including opioid misuse, risky sexual behaviors, meaning sex with multiple partners or behaviors that could um, result in pregnancy or sexually transmitted infections. Increased risk for perpetration of sexual violence and increased risk for suicide or suicide attempts. So experiencing CSA can also increase a person's risk for future victimization. For example, recent studies have actually shown that females exposed to CSA are at a 2 to 13 times, which is such a wide range, 2 to 13 times increased risk of sexual violence victimization in adulthood. And people who experience CSA are at twice the risk for non-sexual intimate partner violence. Hmm, non-sexual. You know, I wonder if it makes you more passive, more submissive. Oh, yeah. 
And then really quick before we end today's episode, we just want to talk about what we do when we encounter these patients or victims or survivors, whatever you want to call it. I feel like everyone kind of calls them something different from the nurses to law enforcement to the advocates that we want to call. And also, side note, I'm sorry if you hear my dog snoring in the background. She's right next to me and I don't have the heart to move her. So when we get a call from one of these exams, it may or may not require consent. It depends on the age. And so like we always say, just check with your governing agency because the age that you can consent for one of these exams for yourself can vary from state to state. In some states, it's age 12 and up, and that's considered consenting age for a sexual assault exam without parent notification. And so sometimes you'll catch yourself in a situation where maybe the parents are suspicious or whoever the caregiver is suspicious that something happened, but the child hasn't disclosed that anything happened. So, I mean, I don't think I've ever done an exam where the child hasn't disclosed. Actually, I take that back. I have done an exam where a child hasn't disclosed directly to law enforcement or to myself. The other day I did a male who was coming home with um, white substance around his mouth coming home from school with a white sub cakey substance around his mouth um, and consistently was saying it was Oreos but then had eventually allegedly disclosed to mom that it had something to do with the penis and had disclosed somebody at school and so that ended up being an exam but then you also run into instances where the child may not be old enough to verbalize that something happened right I've definitely had toddlers I can remember one case I had where mom was consistently finding these small little hairs she thought they were pubes in the child's diaper and she she couldn't discern like where they were coming from um and so that was an exam and so on the CSA forms themselves where we're located there's not a spot for consent it'll have a spot for a law enforcement um what is that called law enforcement approval of a kit and so all of our patients as we've said before they have to law enforcement has to be notified and especially when it comes to our sexual assaults law enforcement is directly involved and they have to be notified and they have to approve us even doing a kit or an exam before um, any of this is even done. And so that's why it's extremely important and imperative that law enforcement believe our patients, right? Because if law enforcement isn't believing them, they're not getting a kit done because we can't do a kit. Well, we can do the kit, but they're not gonna come pick it up. They're not gonna process it if they're not approving the kit. And rant. So it's also important to question the child if they're at an age where they can be questioned. It's really important that we question them separate from whoever brought them in and is making those accusations if it's not the child themselves. So I always question them separately. Always. Yeah. yeah. I hardly ever do it. Well, I I, I will ask. Um, I'll do it in front of the parents and then I'll pull them aside separately. With typically with the, the um, law enforcement with me. And I honestly feel like that's the best way to do it if you're not in a facility that does recorded interviews. Like you definitely want to question them separate from their family and you want to question them where they only have to be questioned one time. So it's you and the law enforcement in the room and you're both able to ask the child 
as many questions as needed. Unfortunately, like that can be very intimidating for a child, but that's just what has to get done. And the reason that we say separate from the family or whoever brought them in is because sometimes those people that the child came with can have some kind of influence over the child. And you want to make sure that you're getting the child's own authentic answer. Yes, exactly. Um, also, when we do child sexual assaults, we don't insert anything um, self-explanatory. Um, just basically what you can see. Um, so, you know, for everyone, for anyone thinking that we use a speculum, we don't. And then just a little quick FYI about a speculum. It's a medical instrument that we use that makes it easier for us to see inside the hollow parts of your body. Um, and so what we use is a vaginal speculum and that widens your vaginal walls so that we can examine your vagina and your cervix. And so these are some of the common areas that will look for injuries and that will swab for DNA and or semen. There are other structures like within the genital area that are common for injury, which we'll talk about on our next episode, which is our general sexual assault, more of the adult sexual assault episode. But um, for now, I just wanted to educate you guys on what a speculum is. And we also don't insert swabs, like nothing goes in. And so we're still swabbing, like you're going to swab the external genitalia and other areas, but just nothing gets inserted into the vaginal vault. Yes. And so as with all sexual assaults, you might not, I think majority of the cases have no injuries. It's a normal exam. That doesn't necessarily mean that nothing occurred. It just means that there's no physical injuries to the genitalia. So back to your trust your gut feeling. If your child starts acting weird or anything like that, that's what you should, that's what you should trust your gut and you as a parent how your child acts probably dictates how they're feeling. And then y'all, since I actually talked about an advocate, I just want to talk about their role and what they do for us during this entire process because they are really, really important. So advocates can be present for sexual assaults and also for domestic violence patients. And their role is to help them to consider their options and provide them with information that's necessary to make the informed decisions. Um, For a CSA, we call an advocate automatically. There is no, um, yes, I want an advocate or no, I do not. When it's an adult, they have the ability to accept or decline. Um, But once the patient has made a decision on what they want to do, the advocate is also responsible for supporting the patient in the implementation of that decision. So they'll keep the patient talking. They'll also make the room a little bit lighter, just make it a more comfortable environment. They provide a lot of resources, um, counseling, say they need shelter, anything like that. You guys, your advocates are so important and we're so, so grateful for them because this can be a lot. As you guys can probably tell, this situation is extremely overwhelming for everyone that's involved. So when you have an advocate that can kind of lighten it and then take a little bit of that burden and responsibility off of you to to make sure that you're providing all the information necessary, it's really, really helpful. So 
Thank you to all of our advocates out there. We love you. you. We appreciate you. And keep being amazing human beings. So, y'all, that wraps up our CSA episodes. Thankfully, that's a really heavy one. If you're still with us right now, we're so, so thankful. If you could just do us the favor of subscribing, giving us a rating, leaving a comment, it helps immensely. And until next week, y'all stay safe, and we'll catch you on the next episode.